Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 182. Today is April 22nd, 2016. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. In today's episode, I want to talk to you about buy and hold. That's a strategy that most people believe in. It's probably the most popular that's perpetuated by the financial industry. I'm not a big proponent of buy and hold, and that doesn't mean that it's not right for you. It doesn't mean that it's a wrong strategy. That's what we're going to talk about today as far as what's going on in the overall markets. I'm not going to provide you with a market commentary in this episode because I'm recording this on Friday morning. The markets have, have obviously not closed yet. I want to wait and see how they settle down. They have been starting to get more volatile. Investors Business Daily moved the market status into uptrend under pressure. So I'll come back over the weekend with a better analysis of what's going on with the markets, but you do have to be patient. You know, we're only about two weeks into the uh, first quarter earnings announcements, and so we have another solid week, if not another two weeks, before we get the majority of the S&P 500 reporting. And so once that happens, that's when we'll really get a real uh, solid direction of where this market is headed. You know, ultimately, everything comes down to earnings and future earnings expectations. That's why right now you're seeing some of the, the high-flying technology companies that were so much in favor last year. Their earnings are, are coming in less than expected, and so they're taking a hit right now. Again, we'll be patient. We'll wait and see how that all that pans out. I do want to mention, and this goes back to wealth building principle number eight, which is to be aware of propaganda. Incidentally, haven't mentioned it in a while. If you haven't listened to the first 10 episodes of this podcast, go back and do that. That's where I lay out and establish my 10 wealth building principles. These are things that I developed over my 30 plus years of investing in the marketplace and, and also studying wealth in general. I spent a lot of years studying what I call middle class millionaires or blue, blue collar millionaires, people that build their own wealth and take a decade or two to do it. I not only studied that lifestyle, but I live that lifestyle and that's why I'm here today and I'm able to share my knowledge and information with you through this podcast. So if you haven't done it, go back, listen to those 10 episodes. The one that I want to bring up now, though, is, is wealth building principle number eight, and that has to do with propaganda. I bring that up because right now the major media and obviously Wall Street are doing everything they can to prop up this market, even when the fundamentals don't justify it. I'm not going to get into why that may or not may not be. And then obviously this is just my perception of the situation. You may have a different perception. But I'll give you a couple examples. Right now, as we're in earnings season and these, these announcements are coming out, you're hearing about how good the economy is, about how all these companies are beating earnings estimates. And in fact, over 70% of companies are beating estimates. It's even higher than normal. Well, of course, they're beating estimates because these estimates have been revised down so low. One example that I saw this morning was McDonald's. All the headlines are telling you how great McDonald's is, how their stores are recovering, what a great turnaround its story it's been since they put in their, their uh, CEO about, I don't know, a year, 18 months ago. And incidentally, he has done a good job. I'm not detracting for, from anything he's done. But what I want to point out is, if you look at the headlines, they talk about, you know, all-day breakfast, comparable store sales are up 5% in the U.S., they're up 6% overall uh, globally, and all that stuff. But when you dig down in the minutiae and you look at the bottom line number, 
what I read was that McDonald's quarterly revenues overall were down 0.9%. So overall, quarterly top-line revenue sales for McDonald's were down about 1%. That's in spite of the fact that same-store sales were up 5%, and international sales were up 6 and all these other things. With all that being said, their revenue is still down overall. But it did beat the estimates, which were revised down. So what I want to point out here is Wall Street and the media that supports Wall Street will spin this story any way they want to. Another thing to look at, and I think this is really amusing, if you remember going back three or so weeks ago, maybe four weeks ago, I was pointing out that just because OPEC said that they were going to cap production, now they didn't say they were going to reduce production, they simply said they were going to cap oil production at January levels. But when that news came out sometime, I think, middle of February, oil bottomed out. It started rising up, and we went from oil being around $27 a barrel to oil at $40, $41, $42 a barrel. Well, you'll remember that I was skeptical about all that, and I kept saying that this is just talk. No one's cutting production. No one's even promising to cut production. All they're saying is that they're going to cap oil production at current levels. And even with that, they're just saying they're going to do it. It's all talk. Well, their big meeting was scheduled. That occurred last Sunday. Iran didn't attend the meeting. Iran refuses to cap any of their production. In fact, I think they're talking about ramping it up somewhere between 2 and 3 million barrels a day because they've had to sit out of a lot of the oil sales because of embargoes and other restrictions that have been held against them. And so they don't want to keep their oil off the market. So they're looking to ramp up and pump all they can. Well, we knew that going into the meeting, and there's no surprise there. But what has surprised a lot of people, and it really hasn't surprised me, is that now all that talk about capping production, that's totally fallen apart. Right now, Russia is saying that they're going to increase their levels. Likewise, the Saudis are saying that they're not going to cap production either. They're talking about perhaps scaling up as much as another one and a half or two million barrels a day. And this is at a time when we still have an oversupply of oil of at least 1%. So we're a good 1 to 1 1.5 million barrels a day where supply exceeds demand. And so when you look very insularly only at the United States, and we are cutting back, we have taken our rigs offline. Some 70-80% of our rigs, over 2,000 rigs have been shut down. We're talking about reducing our production in 2016 here in the United States. These are the high-cost shale oil producers, they're going to take maybe another 500,000 barrels a day off this year, and then maybe they're talking another 500,000 barrels a day next year. Again, and this is all talk, but the only withdrawal of oil supply coming off the market that we're really seeing is from the United States. We were producing almost 10 million barrels at our peak last year. At current levels, that's down below 9 million right now. So the primary reason that the supply and demand is only out of balance by, say, 1, maybe 1.5%, as opposed to the 2% last year, is because U.S. oil is coming off the market. But everybody else is still pumping, and that's because they have a very low price basis. Saudi Arabia can pump oil for something like $5 a barrel. It only costs them $85 a barrel to support their lavish lifestyle and their kingdom and their government and their whole welfare system. But in terms of production costs to get the oil out of the ground, they can do that for about $5.
so their production is not getting squeezed out like our higher cost shale oil production here in the United States. The real propaganda spin that's going on here though is that you'll remember over these past six or seven weeks all the talk about capping production brought the price of oil from around $27 a barrel up into the you know $40-$41. Well right now with all the talk of Saudi Arabia saying that they're going to increase their production and Russia saying that they're going to increase their production and nobody else in OPEC or any of the non-OPEC countries other than the United States saying that they're going to limit their production. Well, with all this talk of furthering the glut and increasing the production, the price of oil is going up. It's not coming down. Oil, as I record this right now, is at $44 a barrel. Why isn't the talk about increasing production, lowering the cost of oil, just like the talk of capping production raised the price of oil six weeks ago? Well, for right now, the reason is, is that the investment community wants to keep the price of oil as high as they can because that's what's helped propel the stock market over these past six or seven weeks. So Wall Street is doing its best to convince everybody that first quarter earnings are fantastic and everything's rosy and that the market's going to go on and hit all-time new highs. Well, now the market may indeed go on and hit all-time new highs. I have no way of telling that. I put up a chart probably a couple months ago at investablewealth.com where I showed the probability of where the market could go over the next 12 months. And I did that based on a 16-year comparison of likely valuations for the S&P 500. So I wasn't assessing any probabilities. I was just saying that these numbers are all logically possible based on what has occurred over the previous 16 years. Well, a lot of people didn't like that chart because it showed the S&P 500 ranging from anywhere, oh, I don't remember the exact number, it was something like 1380 on the low side all the way up to like 2600 on the high side. Now, people didn't like that because they felt it was too extreme either way, but the bottom line is you can make a rational argument for any of those numbers just based on valuations that had been used in the marketplace over the past 16 years. I said right in that article, if you don't like that type of uncertainty, then you shouldn't be investing in the stock market because the market is not all about balance sheets and spreadsheets and accounting principles where you can just predict a very reliable number based on rational inputs and outcomes. The market is based on human nature. It's based on fear and greed. It's based on people's perceptions of reality, not necessarily the true underlying intrinsic value. And so that's why one day people were willing to pay a multiple of 16 times earnings. A few months later, they may be willing to pay 18 or 21 times earnings. Maybe in a downturn, they're only willing to pay 13 times earnings. That's what drives the stock market. And that's why the media and Wall Street uses propaganda to try and support the market even when the fundamentals don't justify it. They know that they have weak fundamentals, but they want the investing community to perceive a higher value or at least a higher future value, and that's how we get multiple expansion. That's how valuations get priced out at 20 or 22 times earnings when in fact they should be at maybe 15 or 16. I bring all this up because right now in a lot of sectors of the market, we're seeing high valuations. They may not hold up. They certainly aren't rational to me but we'll have to wait and see how it all pans out. I suggest you keep your eye on the price of oil. And if Russia and Saudi Arabia and everybody else do ramp up their production, and at the same time, if we continue to have either a global slowdown or even just global stagnation, 
that means we're going to have more of an oil glut and I don't see how oil prices can be sustained at $44 a barrel at those levels. We'll have to wait and see. But I'm digressing and let's get on with the main topic of today, which is a buy and hold strategy. Now, I want to start out by saying I'm not a fan of buy and hold, but it isn't that I don't think the buy and hold works. And it isn't that I don't think that you should be buying and holding. This podcast, the whole principles of wealth setting, are to share with you my experiences and what's worked for me. And in many cases, what's worked for me is a contrarian approach to what you're commonly told on Wall Street. Now, I'm a cynical person, and I believe that that's because the investment community can make more money from you in fees and offering other services. And so, in my opinion, that's why they don't always tell you what I believe is the truth. But hey, I could be totally off base. You need to think about things yourself and draw your own conclusions. But when it comes to buy and hold, I'm just not a fan of it. I look at my my history of trading and I look at what would have happened to my wealth had I only bought and held. And I and if that would be the case, I would have significantly less wealth than I do today. Again, though, that doesn't mean the buy and hold isn't right for you. You have to want to have an active trading strategy approach. You have to be willing to either study the markets and make your own trades or hire somebody that does that for you. Just because you're an active trader doesn't mean you're going to make any money, right? You have to do it in a successful manner and you have to have a little bit of luck. Same way with hiring a professional. Just because you hire someone to do it for you doesn't mean that they're going to be competent. So there's a lot of factors that go into this. And there's a lot of reasons why I don't like buy and hold. I'm not going to go into all those today. Some of them do have to do with the fact that I think the financial industry has people conned into believing that they should buy and hold not because it's good for the investor, but because it's very easy for the financial service company. I mean, think of it this way. If you're paying a professional to manage your money, and that's whether you're paying someone directly that you have an advisor or you're just putting the money into some type of an index fund or a mutual fund or whatever, you're still taking the responsibility for those trades and entrusting it in someone else. Well, the people that are receiving that money from you, if they've convinced you that the best strategy is to buy and hold, it just means that they have to work less hard to maintain you as a client. Because whether the market goes up or down, they can just tell you, hey, you're fully invested. We've got you diversified. You're covered. This too shall pass. Don't worry about it. Just stay in there for the long run. That means that they have to make less transactions. In a lot of ways, they don't have to take responsibility for the trade because, hey, it's buy and hold. It's all going to work out. That might be a cynical approach, but that is the way I look at it. Again, you need to draw your own conclusions. What I do want to say is that buy and hold does work. It's a strategy that works over the long term. And if you have the time, then buy and hold will work for you. What I want to point out in this episode, though, is that the reason it may not work for you is you may not have the time that you think you do or the time that Wall Street has convinced you that you have. And here's what I mean by that. Whenever you see the studies that promote buy and hold, well, that's all true based on the studies that they put out. But you'll notice generally that they tend to start those studies when the market's at its lowest point. So right now, you'll hear a lot of people quoting numbers, and they'll go back to March of 2009. Well, that's when the market was at at its lowest point, coming out of the greatest recession that we've had in 80 years. So of course, the market has gone straight up, and buy and hold is a fantastic strategy if you've been doing it since March of 2009. But it isn't as impressive if you look at the numbers, say, from January of 2007, or pick any other time when the market was at a high. 
you know, for example, if you're a young person and you're just starting to get into the market now and you didn't get in until 2013, well, you're not seeing that impressive of, of a result because the last 24 months or so, the market's been pretty stagnant. So again, it all depends on what that time frame is. Now, the people that are proponents of buy and hold, they're looking at very long time frames. I've seen a lot of studies that go back 180 years, and they use that as a way of really trying to show stability. Well, you know, over 180 years, blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah, that's over 180 years. Things can really look good over that long of a time frame. But, you know, I really don't care what happened during the Civil War in the stock market. I'm concerned about what's going to happen over the next 10 years. And even for the studies that only go back 20 or 30 years, you have to really look at your particular life situation and say, are you truly investing over a 30 or 40 year time period like they're trying to convince you that you are? And my argument is, is that you're not. And I know you're saying, hey, John, what are you talking about? I started investing when I'm 25. I'm not going to retire till I'm 65. That's 40 years right there. And then, you know, I don't plan on dying until I'm 90. So there's another 25 years. So, you know, there's this long time period that I'm going to be invested in the market. And yes, that's true. There's going to be a long time period that you're in the market. But the way I look at it and the argument that I'd propose to you is that it's always that next 10 years that matter. And let me try and explain it to you this way. Let's say you're 25 years old and you do start investing in the stock market and you plan to invest for the next 40 years until you're 65. Well, those first 25 years that you're investing, you're starting from a very small base, right? That first year that you're 25, maybe you're only saving $2,000 or $3,000 or $5,000. And so it doesn't really matter what type of market fluctuation you're going through at that point because you're starting with a very small base of money. It's really not until you've been investing for, say, 25 years that you get a substantial amount of money. And it's at that point that you need to be very concerned and protective of that money. For example, let's just say in your first few years of investing, you've saved $10,000 and the market totally falls apart. It drops 50%. That means that you've lost $5,000 of your savings. But now let's say that you're 45 or you know 50 years old and you've saved up half a million dollars. Well, in that case, to lose $5,000, the market only needs to go down by 1%, and it's going to do that in any given hour of the, the day anyways. So do you see why I'm saying that, yeah, okay, you're investing for 40 years, but you're really not because maybe that first 25 years doesn't matter that much. You didn't have enough money to make it count. But once you hit 45 or 50 or 55 or 65, if you've been doing a good job of saving and investing, then you've built up a substantial nest egg. And for you to just take a buy and hold strategy, to me it makes no sense when we know that statistically and mathematically and historically, the market goes through regular corrections where over any given you know, five to seven or eight year period in a normal healthy market, you can expect it to pull back a good 20-25% or more. Now, that hasn't happened in the last seven years, and so people are getting complacent. But markets can and do adjust and correct and can drop significantly. And depending on your age and how much money you have in the market, you may not be able to weather that storm like you could when you were you know, 25 or 30 years old and you only had a few thousand dollars in the market. Think of it this way. Over any 10-year period, there's probably a 30% chance that the market can fall apart and have a correction 
of at least 20% or more. Now, do you want to lose 20% of your portfolio when you have a lifelong savings of half a million or a million or $3 million tied up in your investments? If you lose 20% of $50,000, well, it's not hard to get that back. You'll either get that back by ramping up on your savings, you know, having additional contributions, or over time, through compounding interest, you'll be able to make that $10,000 up. But do you want to lose 20% of your $1.5 million portfolio? You know, tightening your belt and making up for a $10,000 loss is one thing. But where are you going to come up with an extra $300,000 to make up for that 20% loss on a million and a half dollar portfolio? What I'm trying to emphasize here is the larger that your portfolio is and the longer that you've been saving towards it, the less buy and hold is relevant as a safe trading strategy. And again, this is just my opinion. You need to work the numbers and think about it for yourself. And I know some of you are saying, but oh yeah, but you know, you're not going to spend the money right away. That if there is a pullback like we saw in 2008 or in 2000, and that's just going back over the last 16 years, we've seen two major corrections in the stock market. So even if you're a younger person, this should still be readily apparent in your mind that these major corrections can take place because you've, you've just lived through two of them. You're going to say, yeah, but if you buy and hold, you know, it'll eventually come back. And it will eventually come back. But remember, you're saving this money not for the sake of saving it. You're saving it to someday spend it. And what if you just happen to have the bad luck where it's that one decade that the 30% probability happens and we do get a 20 or a 30 or a 48% correction in the market and you're trying to just buy and hold. You put blinders on, you ignore it, and you just sit through it. You say, yeah, well, it'll come back in four or five years. Well, it may come back, but what if you need the money in the meantime? What if you were 65 or 67 and retired in 2007 and then the market fell apart? Well, what are you going to do? You're depending on that retirement savings to give you income. You know, what happens if you get ill or have some kind of medical emergency and you need some money you weren't planning for? Where are you going to pull that out of your savings or out of your retirement money? Well, what if it's during one of these periods of times when the market crashes? Now, what if you have to pay for a wedding or college expenses or you go through a period of extended unemployment? I mean, there could be a million reasons why you need that money over a five or six year period when the market hasn't yet recovered. I'll give you a real world example that, that probably many of you haven't thought of, but I, I saw it happen first place. And, and so I know it's a, it's a real example. Think about required minimum distributions. Now, if you're young, you're not thinking about that. But if you're an older person that's been saving for a long time and you're in retirement, you know that you're required when you reach 70 and a half to take required minimum distributions from your IRA. Now, the amount that you have to withdraw is based on an actuarial schedule and it's different for everybody. But just let me give you an example of this. I'm going to throw out some numbers, but just think through this. If you were a 75-year-old person in December of 2008 and you had an IRA account, and let's say that you're a wellsteader, you're the millionaire next door, you're someone that was frugal all your life, you saved, you invested your money wisely, and now you're 75 years old and you have a million dollars. And for our example, just to keep everything simple, I'm just going to say that it's in the S&P 500. And it's in an IRA and it's been you know, tax-sheltered all these years, but because you're over 70 and a half, you're required to take minimum distributions. Well, as a 75-year-old with a million-dollar IRA, in December of 2008, by the end of that year, by the last day of the year, you would be required to withdraw 
oh, about 4.5-4.4% of that IRA. That would be your required minimum distribution based on the actuarial tables and your life expectancy and things like that. Um, so for our numbers, let's just say if you had that million dollar portfolio, the government requires you to take out at least $43,668. So that's roughly 4.4% of that million dollars. That's your required minimum distribution. If you don't take that, you get a penalty of like 50 or 55%. Now, the reason I bring this up is that, remember, the market crashed in 2008. And that required minimum distribution is based on the value of your portfolio on the last day of the previous year. So in my example, if you're a 75-year-old person and on December 31st, 2007, you had a million dollars in the stock market in your IRA, and then we go into 2008, particularly into that summer and that fall, and the market crashes, and you're someone that's buy and holding, you're not going to sell anything, you're not going to make any changes. Well, from December of 2007 till December of 2008, the market was down over 38%. So now that 75-year-old doesn't have a million dollars in the S&P 500. They've lost over 38, almost 38.5% of their portfolio. Their portfolio balance is now something like $615,000. And you're saying, hey, buy and hold, no problem. Two or three years, it's going to come back. And the market did come back, right? So by you know 2013 or so, all that money was back to where it was. But remember, this person is required to take minimum distributions. And that minimum distribution is based on the balance of that IRA account from the previous year before the market fell apart. So regardless of what their balance is in December of 2008, they're still required to take out that $43,668. Well, now instead of that being about 4% of their portfolio, they're now required to take out over 7% just to meet the government's required minimum distribution. And if they don't, they're penalized by about you know $25,000. So that's just one example of when you don't have control over money that you withdraw from your retirement saving. So you know the point I'm trying to illustrate here is that you think that you can weather the storm, but there are going to be reasons why you may have to draw down that money. And that's one reason why I don't believe that buy and hold is the best strategy when the value of your portfolio is significant. Why take those kind of losses? Well, I know some of you are saying, well, hey, John, that's not realistic because a 75-year-old man or woman wouldn't have a million dollars in the S&P 500, you know, because they're going to be diversified. Well, you know, what if they have a $3 million portfolio and that was just a third of their portfolio? Maybe they have that $3 million split up where, you know, a million of it is in bonds, a million of it's in the S&P 500, and the other million is in real estate. Of course, a 70-year-old person can have a million dollars in the stock market. And you have to be careful about diversification because in the simplified models that the financial industry wants to present to you, they make it sound like nothing's correlated. But oftentimes, you know, go back in history and look at things. When one market's down, many markets are down. You know, just because the U.S. market's down, that doesn't mean that you're going to be safe if you invest in Japan or in Europe. Or just because blue chip stocks are down, that doesn't mean that technology stocks won't be down too. And even bonds. I'm not going to get into it now, but you've heard me say many times that we are at the end of a 30-year bond cycle. For 30 years or more, we've had decreasing interest rates, which means that bond prices have gone up. But we're at the end of that now. And I don't know how long they'll stay where we're at, 
but from a historical perspective, it is extremely unusual that the 10-year Treasury is trading at under 2%. Now, in the market we're in, it could easily go down to 1% or half a percent. And we can look at Europe or look at Japan and see negative interest rates. So we know that it can go lower, but what I'm saying is it can't go lower forever. At some point, just like all cycles, we'll get a retracement, a regression to the mean, and that 30-year cycle where the interest rates have come down, at some point they will start to go back up. And when they do, when that occurs, people that are in bond funds are going to lose principal. That hasn't happened in so many years that no one thinks about it or they don't think it's possible. But bond funds do not provide you with the protection that many people have been led to believe that they do. How about I digress? Let's get back to buy and hold. So again, buy and hold will work over 40 or 50 years, maybe even over only just 25 or 30. But what buy and hold doesn't give you is protection against a catastrophic loss that can occur over, say, a 5 or a 10-year period. And again, this is probable to happen. In over any decade, you're looking at probably a good 30% chance that the market can fall apart. Think of it this way. Think of a buy and hold strategy as someone that goes through life without owning any life insurance. Now, I can go out and show you a million studies that have been done that buy and hold works, right? I can go over the last 25 years or the last 35 years or 180 years and show you that if you did nothing other than buy and hold in the S&P 500 or a general index fund, you would be well ahead of the game. But think through that logic. That's no different than going to an old folks home and finding 15 90-year-old women that never own life insurance and looking at them and saying, hey, these 15 women never spent a dime in a life insurance premium, and had they done that, it would have been a waste of money because they would have never collected on that policy. And so the best strategy for them was to live without life insurance. Well, of course, that's true for those 15 women in an old folks home that are 90 years old because they're still alive. They didn't experience a catastrophic loss like a death. That's the same way of looking at the stock market over a 40-year period and saying, well, look, it's healthy now. Hey, it's 2016. We're only 2.5% off of an all-time historic high. Of course, buy and hold works. The market always comes back. Well, it does when there's not a loss. But when the market fell apart in 2008, you had to wait until 2013 to, you know, to get back to where you were. And some sectors have never recovered. The banking sector now is not where it was in 2008. Look at the tech bubble that burst in 2000. You know, I think it was only last year that Microsoft got back to where it had been prior to the dot-com bubble. And in fact, the whole NASDAQ, I think, again, didn't get back to where it was until early in 2015. So if you were invested in that sector of the economy because there was a catastrophic loss, it took you know, 15 years to get back to where you were. And that's on a nominal basis. That's not factoring in inflation. So a buy and hold strategy is like going through life without life insurance. If you want to play the odds, and if you're lucky enough to live to be 90 or 100 years old, you'll win the game, you'll have beaten the odds, the money that you didn't spend on life insurance premiums was not wasted, it was a smart idea for you not to have life insurance. But that doesn't mean that you're a wise investor, because most people don't beat the odds, most people don't live to be 90 or 100. They do need life insurance. And so my argument for buy and hold is that, yes, many people will get lucky. 
you only have, a, say, a 30% probability that the market's going to fall apart in any given decade. So that means that two out of three times, everything's going to be just fine. And if you can just survive through that decade, there won't be any problems. But if you're one of those unlucky people that happens to retire in 2008, or you have to take a minimum distribution, or when the economy fell apart, you lost your job, and so you not only lost half of your retirement savings, but you also lost your job, and then you had to draw down from those savings to make ends um, get by for the next five years until you got, got back on your feet, well, you could have wiped out your entire previous 25 years of savings because you thought you had $500,000 in savings, but when the market fell apart, now your portfolio is only worth, say, $280,000, and you had to live on that for the next five years until you got back into a job that was making the same amount of money that you had been making in 2008. So here you are in, say, 2015, and you've decimated your retirement savings, even though the market is back above where it had been. So it all depends on how you want to play those odds. And as I said at the beginning of this podcast, it all comes down to whether or not you want to take an active approach to your trading strategy. Now, I talk about a lot of simple things. I often say that, hey, if you just follow a 100-day moving average and you only own the S&P 500 when it's above its 100-day moving average and then you sell it when it drops down below that 100-day moving average, that approach isn't going to make you rich. You're not going to be Warren Buffett by it. And over a 30-year, say a 40-year period, it doesn't mean that you're going to have more money than if you just buy and hold. Remember, buy and hold is like that life insurance. As long as there's not a catastrophic loss, you wasted your money on the life insurance premium. Well, trading a 100-day moving average strategy is the same way. If the current situation you're in right now is not one of those catastrophic um, you know, lost decades, then you're much better off buying and holding. But you don't know that until you're in it. It's like the life insurance. You can't buy it after you're dead. The 100-day moving average is not going to maximize your income. It's not going to ensure that you have the most income possible from investing. What it does, just like life insurance, it protects you against a catastrophic loss in the current market conditions. The 100-day moving average strategy is also a very simple approach. As you learn more and become more of an active trader and you become more sophisticated in what you do, you'll develop other techniques. You'll not only maybe just buy the S&P when it's above that 100-day moving average, but maybe you'll also short the S&P when it goes below that. So now you're making additional income. You may use other strategies such as using option strategies where you're using calls and puts, again, based on whether you're above or below that 100-day moving average. You may not just rely on a 100-day moving average. I certainly don't rely on just a 100-day moving average. I talk about that in simple terms to explain that to people that are new to investing. On a regular basis, at a minimum, I'm looking at a 5-day, a 10-day, a 50-day, a 100-day, and a 200-day on a daily basis across the board. And then when I drill down to a specific sector of the economy or a specific stock, I may be going back and looking at long-term averages, like I just mentioned, with the interest rates. Well, with interest rates, of course, I'm tracking it on a very short-term basis, a 5 or a 10-day. I'm also tracking it on a mid-term basis, like a 50, a 100, or a 200-day. But I'm also looking at interest rates over a 30-year cycle. 
and with a particular stock that I have a large interest in, rather than just looking at a simple, say, 50 or 100 day moving average, maybe I've identified that that stock has a particular correlation with a 72 day moving average, or maybe a 13 day moving average, or, you know, a, a 15 and a half day moving average. You can drill down and get that specific if you're that sophisticated if you have the tools to do it, and if your portfolio is large enough to justify that type of minutia. So when I talk about swing trading, and I talk about trying to time the market, it's not all about something as simple as just a 100-day moving average, but that is, in my opinion, a better approach than just simply buying and holding and exposing yourself to the 30% probability that in any given decade, your portfolio could suffer a 25 or 30 or 45 percent loss. Now the reason I brought this up in this episode is that I've gotten a lot of questions about this over you know the past four or five months. We, you know, we saw the market hit an all-time high last May-June type time frame and then within about 40 or 50 days from that all-time high the flash crash occurred on August 24th. It hit a double bottom the next month in September. The market recovered and, and got right up around 2100, 2110 in early November. The market then fell apart again. We had another double bottom that took place in January and February. And then here we are just a, a few days ago, the market was back up above 2100. In a market that's as volatile as the one that we're in, to me, buy and hold doesn't make any sense. Now it may to you, I'm not telling you what to do. I have a podcast episode I did a long time ago called, you know, the best trading strategy is the one that works for you. So if you're happy sitting through a market with this type of volatility, that's great. Good for you. And if you're only 25 years old and you have a very small portfolio, it doesn't matter anyways. But if you're someone of more means and you're closer to retirement and you have a significant amount of money tied up in whether it's the stock market or bonds or wherever your money is, these markets do fluctuate. In my opinion, you do need to be aware of trends and of moving averages, and you have to be conscious of the possibility that there could be a major market correction. Now, I'm not talking about economic gloom and doom. I just mean a good old-fashioned correction of 20-25%. In my opinion, is highly likely because we haven't seen anything like that occur for seven years. Now, that doesn't mean that we couldn't go another seven years without that occurring, but if we did, it would be the first time in history that that ever happened. If you want to play those odds, well, that's fine. Again, go to an old folks' home, find some senior citizens that are in their 90s that never own life insurance. Some people do get lucky. 